Welcome to the attachment point. It might seem crazy what I'm about to say. The only recurring podcast dedicated to insurance careers, insurtech startups, and insurance current events. Your hosts are Carly Burnham, Tony Carnes, and Nick Lamparelli. You can find all of our podcasts, show notes, and insurance-related content at insnerds.com. Now, on to the show. Tony Kainas, and welcome to The Attachment Point. We have a special guest today. I'm really, really excited. Co-hosting with me, we have Nick Lamparelli, and our special guest today is Brian Falchuk, who, I, uh, there's a lot here, so it, it's kind of hard to, for me to even plan on how to introduce him, uh, but he is the head of claims at Hiscock USA, and is also a, a best-selling author. So, uh, Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. Just busy with Hurricane Harvey. Everyone who works in claims, I'm sure pretty much every carrier right now is busy, but we're supposed to be. You know, that's what we're here for. Absolutely. Thank you for taking the time to, to do this. We would have totally understood if you, if you had to reschedule. For the listeners, we are recording this on August 30th, so the hurricane hit Houston really hard and is now heading towards Louisiana a lot softer than it hit Houston, but, but yeah, it's Thank you for, for taking the time to join us. So, Brian, I've got to ask, you've got a very, very interesting insurance career. And again, all we do at IMS Nurse is, is insurance. So we look at a lot of people's insurance careers. So when I was looking at your LinkedIn, it, it looks like you started at, at Liberty Mutual and then went to McKinsey. That's right. And how did that happen? That's not a normal move. Yes, it's, it's kind of a mirror image of what you typically see. So I, I went to Liberty Mutual in the internal strategy consulting unit straight out of undergrad and spent a couple of years there and then went into personal lines and, and did really the same kind of work, but just for personal lines sort of special projects work. And it, it was fantastic experience. But after a couple of years, I had felt like, you know, I was sort of plateauing and Liberty is a great company, but it's very large. And so there are pretty specific rules in HR about who can be eligible for what level role. And, you know, I hadn't met the time requirements. You either had to have 10 years of experience or an advanced degree to get to the next level role that I was aspiring to get to. And I was on, you know, year three. So I decided to go get my master's. And that took me through to year four by the time I left. But I left almost exactly at the four-year mark. I think it was like a week past that. And I got my MBA at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth. And uh, coming out of my first year, I went into McKinsey in a summer internship and rejoined full-time. And I did a couple of things outside of insurance, but most of my work at McKinsey was, again, focused back on the insurance industry. So a, a bit backwards from what I think some people do, but um, it worked out pretty well. Interesting. And I'm very happy and I'm actually a little bit surprised that once you got to McKinsey, that you came back to insurance. It's very interesting that what you that the work you did at McKinsey was, was so insurance-focused. Was that by accident, or, or did you, when, you, when you went in, were you specifically looking for more insurance work? Yeah, it's not typical that you go into one industry and focus in there, especially if it's one that you've come from, so they want you to get a more well-rounded experience. In my summer internship, I worked in consumer packaged goods. I worked on deodorant, um, which... For me, it was really exciting. It was the first, you know, tangible thing I'd worked on. I worked on deodorant and, um, like 
toothpaste and mouthwash, which was, was pretty neat. I was probably the only person who got excited by deodorant, but it's because all I knew was insurance, you know, it's a neat thing. But when I got back in full time, I, you know, I, was, I had just gotten married and the idea of a long-term career with that kind of lifestyle wasn't really what I was looking for or what my wife had signed up for. Um, she made that very clear to me when I proposed to her. You know, for, it was it was really a decision about how can I maximize my, my experience at McKinsey and the opportunities that that will afford me afterward. And that's really to focus in on the industry that, I mean, while I was only at Liberty for four years, I got a lot out of that four years because I came in with immediate high-level exposure. I mean, my first internal client ended up becoming the CEO of Liberty. Uh, as a, a guy named David Long. It was pretty amazing. So, you know, right off, like, yeah, yeah. He's, I mean... I was there for his predecessor's tenure and uh, it was neat watching how he ascended to the leadership role, but he's a pretty, pretty brilliant guy. And I certainly got a lot out of working with him that that first experience. I I don't know if he would remember me at all, but I certainly remember him. So, you know, I I got a lot of exposure, a lot of understanding of insurance and and at McKinsey, there's just more of the same, I'd say much more intensity. Uh, and obviously, I saw a bunch of different companies and some issues that I just hadn't faced in my role at Liberty. And my my last role at McKinsey was essentially serving as chief of staff for an insurance company. That was that was a, a really amazing experience because I was at the you know the executive table with everyone. This was post acquisition on the company that had been bought and helping them integrate into their new ownership and plot a course forward. So that was a pretty pretty incredible final experience with the firm and that set me up really well for my exit and, and what I went to do afterwards. That's a fantastic kind of career beginning. I, I do want to want to clarify a little bit real quick uh, for most of our listeners being insurance professionals, they're not as familiar with my, with McKinsey. Just, just, just to be clear, so McKinsey, what, the, the biggest or, or at least the most famous consulting company and when you talked about, about how hard you were working and how your, your wife uh, you know, they, they don't want you to put in that many hours. We're talking like 80 to, 100, 80 to 100 hour weeks, basically, right? And you're basically living on a plane. Yeah, I mean, there, yeah, I was I was camped out in this this little Sheridan outside of Cincinnati for months at a time. And it's really convenient when they know you by name, hold the same room for you and let you keep like your sneakers and gym bag there. But it's really sad at the same time. So, yeah, my, you know, I have plenty of weeks that were... They're more like, there's they're some really nice staff there. I had plenty of weeks that were more like 60 hours, but I also had several that, um, you know, at like midnight, you don't know if you're going home at 1 a.m. or 1 the next day or 1 a.m. the next day. You know, it's it's not just the time. It was probably actually more about the inconsistency of things and the unpredictability. Okay. So you're, you're on the road a lot, and that's probably easier because no one expects you to come home. Well, eventually, <laughs> I hope, but at least not that night. But I, um, you know, I happen to serve some local clients every now and then. You know, I remember having this discussion with my father. He's like, oh, you know, come for dinner on Thursday or whatever. I was like, Dad, I, I, can't, I don't know if I can come for dinner on Thursday. I can pretty much guarantee I can't at a time when you would want to eat. But I have no idea. And they just couldn't even understand. If you're in town, why can't you be here or be there? Why don't you, how come you don't know if you're going to be available at 7 at 6 You don't know in 30 minutes? So it, it's a very tough lifestyle. It's amazing. I mean, I looked at McKinsey the same way I looked at business school, which was I'm not going to be a business school student for the rest of my career. 
this is a two-year investment in my future. And that's roughly what I looked at McKinsey. I don't know if it's two years, 18 months, or three years, but I don't plan on staying to make partner. I plan on working my butt off for however long I'm there and really trying to push things forward for myself, my career, my connections, all that. And that's really what I did. So very difficult. Pretty much every day I felt like a complete moron, and that's exactly what I wanted. Well, I should say a moron, but, but like I learned something. And that's, I mean, you're just, you're working around the smartest people literally in the world, either at McKinsey or at your clients. And you're working on some really meaty things at, you know, I was like 28, you know, like how, how many people get that level of experience and responsibility and impact at such a young age. So I, I, I got a lot out of my time there. Brian, this is Nick. So could you just, Spend a couple of minutes and talk about that. Could you talk about, you know, either a particular project or for those that are younger that are listening and trying to understand what a consultant does, what would take a hundred hours a week? What fills that time? What are, what are some of the things that you're doing? I'm guessing that some of it was probably romantic at first and then became less romantic over time. But could you talk about what fills that time? What do, what do consultants do and why are they so valuable? Yeah, I think it's an incredibly hard thing to answer. I feel like I can do that, but I know I couldn't when I was in the midst of it. And I I couldn't find anyone who would clearly tell me what it's really about. So in a nutshell, what consultants do is we engage with different companies to help them solve really meaty business issues. And that can be setting the course for the next five years in terms of like a, a corporate strategy. It can be figuring out a a growth strategy. Maybe that's growing existing business, creating a new business or entering into a new market or, you know, a new geography with something existing. A lot of that that I just mentioned is very positive growth kind of stuff. There's also, you know, the, the, the other side of the coin is like when a business isn't performing is trying to figure out why and how to fix it. And I was really lucky that except for one, one engagement, I didn't have to do, well, I never had to be the one, but I didn't, I didn't do anything that led to downsizing, layoffs, anything like that. My last engagement was the one that definitely took the most time, but it's funny. There's two major things came out of that. One is I talk about a pretty big work failure in my book and it's from that project. And then the other is my current job. It was my first time doing anything in claims. And I'm currently head of claims at a really successful insurance company. So it's kind of funny that this one, you think about it, this one experience had both probably, you know, one of my biggest career failures or mistakes and set me up for my biggest career success. So it's interesting how life works out. But let me say what that, that project was, because it's a good example of the kinds of things that a, a consultant could do. So this was that company that that I was sort of parachuted into as chief of staff. Stepping back before the acquisition was complete, we were helping the acquiring company to figure out all the ways that they were going to integrate. And actually, they had done eight other acquisitions and none of the companies overlapped. So they never integrated them, which is funny because that was actually the strategy for making the acquisitions was you integrate all the operations. and They never did it. So the new acquisition overlapped with, I think, four of the existing companies. So they were going to be forced into an integration finally. Uh, and we had to plot that. So this wasn't just integrating this roughly $1 billion acquisition. It was integrating what is now going to be a nearly $9 billion business. 
So pretty huge task. And we split into a number of functional teams. So we were focused on things like distribution, say, uh, you know, sort of another name for sales, underwriting, uh, you know, all, all the different functions, finance, IT, et cetera. And then the piece that I worked on was claims. And it's the one part of insurance that I had never really dug into. I'd done a lot of distribution work, customer service, system strategy, things like that. But I never worked on claims. And so I volunteered for this because I was like, look, if I'm going to have a career in insurance, I need to understand claims. It's kind of the whole point of insurance. It's the product that you're ultimately selling. So we were designing a new claims organization that would wrap up all of the different claims teams of these now nine companies. And there was about 2,000 or 2,200 staff that worked in claims at these companies. There were a lot of offices, local offices, and then some larger service center kind of level offices. And they handled every kind of claim you could see from personal lines to commercial lines to specialty lines. And they all did things a little bit differently and they had different ways of slicing the business. So I had become a little bit of an Excel junkie and was getting known for models that I would build to sort of simulate business operations. And so I had to build a model based on their data to plan out the new insurance operation and figure out exactly how many people of each role we would need, where would they be located. So it's not just the people strategy, it's also the real estate strategy. And then it got down to the specific people. So you need 15 of this level person in this location. Who can you draw to fill those roles? How many of them are currently there? How many of them are relocatable? So maybe they're working, you know, a half an hour away because of this acquisition. You now have offices near each other. And who do you need to stick around for a certain amount of time for transition? Who do you need to make an early retirement offer to? It got down to some pretty tough decisions. And, um, I got a lot of data from my client that I used to build up this model and I missed a whole chunk of data, like 10% of the data. So I came up with an answer that was like 15 or 1600 people and this many millions of dollars savings and this many offices that were going to be closed. And it was wrong because like 10% of their business wasn't even accounted for. So that was, uh, that was a pretty huge mistake. And luckily, no, you know, no retirement offers, no closures, nothing like that had happened yet, but it was already in the works. Um, you know, they were starting to put things wow. together. And once it was discovered, it was brought to my attention. I was just, I mean, I, I remember that feeling. Um, it's kind of like the feeling if you've ever seen flashing lights behind you from a cop car and you think <laughs> you've been nabbed on the highway. Only like, you know, feeling like, wow, my career's over and I'm going to get fired on the spot now. Um, and so, you know, I, I found the, the rest of the data. I put it through the model. I made the changes. I went to the client. I said, look, this is what, ha-. obviously I talked to, to the partner and the internal folks, but I went to the client. This is what happened. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really sorry I made this mistake. It was actually, to be fair, it was actually um, someone who worked for her. It was his fault and how he sent me the data, but that's irrelevant. I should have thought about it, I should, you know, it's on me. And that's part of the problem with working about 120 hours a week at that point is you might miss things. Um, so I missed something and I can't blame anyone else for that because it was ultimately my work and I was responsible for the inputs, whether they came from someone else or not. Um, so you isn't, know, I, isn't Brian, isn't that a, a good piece of career advice though? Um, I think we've, of course, you know, we've all been in the, in this industry for a while now and it's very easy to say, well, I got the data from this person, but 
a really a person that really wants to be a success and really thrive in their career, at some point, you know, it, I, it, it goes to uh, something I remember reading from Stephen Covey, which is responsibility means you're response able. You, you know, if, like that. If, if, if you're, you know, if, if it's your job to do a certain thing, then that you have, you may have a small gap in time, but that gap in time exists. And that means that if you receive data from someone, you're still responsible for it. So you have the ability to pick and choose how you want to handle that. And so I, I think I, I remember reading that in the book and, and I know that had health effects on, on you that I know we're going to mm. probably touch on shortly, but that that's just great career advice. Isn't it just be no matter yeah. what your position is, don't, don't blame other people. Try, you know, try to be that person that doesn't pass the buck. Absolutely. I mean, that, that's a great sign of a world-class leader. And that's one of those proof point moments that you have in your career is how do you do when the chips are down? How do you do when you screw up? Do you, act like a responsible adult who's capable of making things better by owning what you did and moving to a resolution and not hiding and passing the buck? Or do you look for other people to take down in your wake? I used to, so I used to ski a lot as a little kid and I was really bad at it. The thing I was worse at was, was getting off the chairlift. And I figured out a way to not fall when I got off the chairlift. If I shoved the people on either side of me, I would stay up. <laughs> it was brilliant. Like, look, do you want to be that guy that pushes the two people next to you and knocks them down? Or do you want to be the one who, whether you fall or not, you get back up and life goes on. And people look at you like, that's a resilient person who's responsible and gets the job done. And here's the thing. Within a week, the world had moved on. Everyone was fine with it, except for me. Because I was so certain that my career was over, I became a monster. Like, I was a jerk. I thought everyone was attacking me. I, like, I might have fixed the problem with the client, but I created a much bigger problem in my career. And my um, annual appraisal or, or evaluation came about a month later. There was not a single word about my mistake in there. The only <laughs> negative thing that came up, like, my, my performance on my projects, like, that was all great. But it was like, you have a serious problem. You're acting like, like no one wants to work with you right now. And it was 100% because of what I was creating because I was so certain everyone thought all these things about me. Like no one's doing this, but me. And that was a really huge learning moment for me. And, and it's one of the things, I mean, there's a whole chapter on it actually in my book. So I, I think this is a perfect transition to, to, to the book. So, so Brian, uh, the, the book, the, the, the tagline uh, of, of, of do a day is how I, how how I overcame challenges, lost nearly a hundred pounds, ran a marathon, became vegan, and learned to to help others live a better life every day. Uh, talking to you about the, about the, about the first few years in your career, and having read the book, it, it's incredible how how you changed. Uh, so so tell 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 us about the book. Um, so the, t thank you for that. First of all, um, the backstory that I think is really important is before, before insurance, I used to be a fat kid. Um, <laughs> you know, insurance was not the turning point for me, but as a little kid, my parents got divorced, you know, like, like a lot of, of people in the U S like what half of our country gets divorced. Um, so I was the youngest of four. I was really young when it was happening. I was like 
four or five years old when things started to be a real problem in my house. And, um, you know, like most little kids, when you're dealing with emotional pain like that, you don't really understand. You don't know how to deal with it. So I turned to something that was comforting, wasn't moving out, wasn't arguing, wasn't judging me, and that's food. And it was always there. It always felt good. And, you know, it never called me fat names or anything. And so I, I put on weight and I put on weight really fast. Um, to the point that as a kid, I was, I was obese. I got to about a hundred pounds overweight. I'd have to say about because I don't actually know. I, the last time I weighed myself, I was 248 pounds and that was when I was eight, in eighth grade. So I was 14. I know I got bigger because the pants that fit me in eighth grade did not continue to fit me later. Um, so I, you know, I, I probably got up into the two sixties. I don't know exactly. Um, right now I weigh like 178 as of this morning. I, when I was marathon training, I think I got down to 169. So I'm, you know, a hundred pounds heavier than I am now. Um, now granted I'm slightly balding, so maybe some of that was just hair weight, but not enough <laughs> to, to make up for that. Um, and I don't know if gray hair weighs less than black hair, but we'll move on. Um, yeah, you know, it, it was it was really about the emotional side of it. It wasn't because I was eating too much or exercising too little. Yes, those things were happening, but those were just symptoms. And in high school, uh, there was a, an amazing guy who worked in my high school who ran the PE program. Uh, he's still there, still doing that. And I know somewhere in the world he's feeling very uncomfortable right now as I say good things about him because he's, he's really just modest and, and doesn't like to take credit. But he... I owe him a lot and he introduced me to a different relationship with my own wellness and he did it in a way that he just gave me, the way he says it is I was walking through the desert and I was thirsty. He handed me water, but I had to be the one to drink. And I think that's a nice way of putting it is he gave me a lot of the tools and the means, but I had to be the one to discover it and I had to be the one to choose to do it. So I I did lose weight in high school and changed a lot, but what I lacked was a true motivation. Like I lost weight in high school because I didn't want people to think of me as the fat kid anymore. And then I went to college and no one knew me. So no one knew me as the fat kid. And so my motivation went away. Um, and you know, that, that stuck with me into my twenties where I just slowly put some of the weight back on because my motivation was about how other people perceived me either in reality or in my head, how they were perceiving me. And once those people weren't around anymore, what was keeping me going? I say, it's like, you know, trying to lose weight for beach season. Well, what happens when beach season's over? You know, my beach season was over. So what was going to keep me in the game? What was going to keep me driven? And I just didn't have anything. And I didn't understand myself enough to know what, you know, what that real motivation could be. And frankly, I was probably too scared to even begin the exercise of looking at myself. And I think that's true for most people. We're not introspective. We don't take the time. And if we really did, we'd probably be kind of freaked out by what we started to unearth. And, you know, I said this for me, is all this emotional pain that I just never dealt with. That's a scary thing. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, you know, I, I think it must have something to do with insurance. You're actually the second person we've interviewed that has lost 100 plus pounds. Um, we, wow. we, did, we did an episode, yeah, we did an episode with um, the the folks at Allied Restoration and there's uh, Tinier Tim who uh, they actually went, he was on a reality TV show that actually walked through this as well. So there must be something about the emotional stress of insurance. Although 
I, I'm sure there's more than that, but I, I myself have also lost a hundred pounds. And so right, your book actually, here. yes, your book actually, we've got a frequency uh, problem. We do. And your book hit home. I, I could feel your pain and oh. food. There was something about food that's just so comforting. Um, it's when, and I find that in an industry where I'm very stressed out, um, my, my comfort comes from if I just eat something while I'm working, that will keep me calm so I can just keep working. And so slowly but surely, I'm gaining the weight back. And as you mentioned in the book, you, you need that, that big motivational factor. And, yeah. you know, that, that's a question I have for you right now. I've, I've lost that. You know, I, I can't, it, it, you, know, you know, thinking of family and things like that just doesn't seem to work. And I think part of the reason why I'm, strugg- I'm personally struggling with it is I don't trust myself anymore. I know, I know exactly what wow. I'm supposed to do. I just, I can't get on any kind of roll. And now I'm afraid to start something because I know I'm going to fail. And, you know, you, I, I'm, you know, you, you do life coaching on the side. And so I'm curious, I'm trying to get free life coaching advice, but I can't seem to find that motivation. I'm, I'm, I'm actually sick and tired of being sick and tired. And so, you know, yeah. what kind of advice would you have for someone that's like searching, searching, searching for that motivational factor and just can't quite seem to find it? Well, okay. You just did a lot of what people are afraid to actually do, which should give you hope. But there's, there's a few, there's a few really meaty things that you just hit on. One is, you know, you're talking about, it's not this, it's not that, it's not my family, or it's not those things anymore. They're not keeping me motivated. The point in that is that's not your motivation. You haven't found it yet. And you may need some help in getting there. I was, I was working with someone, I mentioned this in the book, so you guys will, you'll recognize it, but he was talking to me about, you know, I go to the gym because it makes me feel better. And that's my motivation. And I, I just looked at it and I said, it's not your motivation. He said, yeah, it is. Yeah, I want to feel better. I said, no, it's not your motivation because you're not going to the gym. If it was your motivation, it would be motivating you, but it's not. So it's not that your family stopped doing it for you or this thing that was motivating you. You know, for me, I thought it was about the perception of others. That wasn't really my motivation. That was motivating me in the moment, but that's not my real, true, deep motivation. And I wasn't at a place where I could find it. It may not have existed yet. And if it did, it may change over time because my life situation changed dramatically. I've got a guy that I'm working with on the career coaching side and he's found himself approaching 60 and he, he lost the job that uh, he had been in for over 30 years and fell into another job that really wasn't a fit because he just felt he had to work because he's the breadwinner and that's his motivation. And he hated it. And he didn't understand why, because, you know, he's, he's got to pay the bills and his family's looking at him. And I said, cause that's not motivation. And you never, like you fell into that first job straight out of college. You never actually understood who you were. You're an extremely different person today than you were for 21 or 22. And because you just kind of rolled with it and it's not a, you know, it's not coming down on him, but he never actually paused to realize who am I? And I, I'm guess, and I'd love to work with you. And I, you know, you put money aside, you can still get the free coaching. I would guess that you haven't actually hit on 
what could actually drive you. And there's a lot to do from a discovery standpoint to bring that forward. You have found things that aren't working. You have hit on some really that, that frightening stuff. You've hit on the frightening kind of self-discovery points about the sense of failure, about how that's holding you back. You know, those are really big things that most people just don't even want to face because that's, that's a lot to handle. So you, it sounds like you've got the pieces sort of bubbling there, but you need some help in working through how to find the purpose in them. And that, you know, that, that just takes some experience. But where the real power is, is like, you know, if you've read the book and, and maybe people are getting a sense of it from the title, Do a Day, it's about freeing yourself from the judgment of the past. And that could be your actions, your mistakes. You know, like I said, with that missing all that data and the, the implications of it, I was judging myself really heavily there. But it could also be about judging what people did to you, you know, and placing blame. You know, people called me fat. It's not that I did anything. They were just, you know, calling me names and making fun of me. All right. Well, either way, there's a lot of judgment and negativity and emotion tied to that. And to have that with you in the present moment is very, it, it, it's like it weighs you down, no pun intended here. And at the same time, we also see that issue when we look forward. So the thing we're looking forward is it, it may not just be a negative thing. It could be positive too. And I talk about both examples in the book that the negative is what most people think about is fear of the future. You know, it's like, I was afraid of getting fired when I was fat. I was afraid that no girl would ever like me and I'd be alone my whole life or everyone would judge me and I'd never have any friends because they'd look at me in a new situation and be like, oh, that guy's fat. He's lazy. He's probably not interesting. He's this, he's that. Whether anyone said any of these things or not, they were saying it in my head. And, you know, these people didn't even exist yet. These were all future situations where I'm like, what about this? What about that? Well, none of that's happening right now. And who knows if it ever will but I'm sure living like it is and I'm living like it's happening this very moment. So again, just like with all that negativity from the past, you live with this crushing feeling of the future. And the thing is, neither of those things is going on right now. And all you're doing is wasting the present moment because of things that were and things that may or may not ever be. And the thing is, once you do that, then you don't actually execute in the present moment and you wake up and you don't find yourself achieving anything because you're just stuck between yesterday and tomorrow. And so do a day is about freeing yourself of that. So you can actually achieve right now. That's, that's exactly what it feels like. I, I feel like I'm rushing the present. Um, just I can't live it, in it. Right. You know, yeah. it's like, I think, that, I think that's it. the biggest, the biggest mountain to get over is, uh, and, and you're right. Like I hear, I hear the voices. There are voices that people have said things or done things that actually haven't been said or done. And so there's a fear of reliving things in the past, um, in the future. And so, um, you know, it, it, and, and, and here's the, the, the worst part. Food comforts that. So it's a, it's a catch 20. It's a, it, you know, it's a double edged sword there. Um, yeah. there, there, you know, it's, I, I guess that's, that's a really big factor in your book and um, something I would have to reread again over and over because it's, it's so true. It's, it's so hard to live in the present. It's so hard to just uh, focus on it. There's a, there's a song by Rush that I was 
just struck by because I all of a sudden heard the word. Uh, it's a song called Time Stand Still. And it's just about that. It's the, the, the writer of the lyrics is basically saying life was fl- flying by around him and he was just fighting to just make that moment last a little bit longer, like to try to freeze it. And I got teary, you know, thinking of that. It's like so true that my life is flying by and I can't enjoy it. You know, it's always yeah. tomorrow, next month, next year. I can't just sit there and that affects my workouts and my exercise and my food schedule as well. So um, for anyone that's listening, um, highly recommend the book. Um, I'm going to read it and reread it. And, uh, you know, there's just so many valuable nuggets there that it's uh, really like forces you to kind of think deeply about yourself. Yeah, I mean, that's that's my hope. It, What's that, Tony? It, it's such an it's such an easy read. It's it's not super long. It's 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 written in 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 a in a very uh, easy to read way. Uh, it, it, the chapters are short. Uh, it, really, like regardless of how busy you are, uh, you you could make the time to 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 read this book. Yeah, the time shouldn't be spent reading my words. My work should just spark you spending the time on yourself. So it, it's about 135 pages. It's not super long. You're right. I did that on purpose because um, I feel like I got I got the point across enough that people then should be able to start their own journey. And that is long. Is that something you do forever? And once you get to a better place with it, you actually want to do it forever. You know, Nick, I was going to say that the eating at work, it's a sign of... Um, trying to like, you're not, you're not actively engaged in what you're doing. And there's a, I would, I would imagine there's a big part of you that doesn't really have want to be actively engaged in what you're like. You're not interested enough in what you're doing. So you're distracting yourself. So you're engaging. I mean, we all do it all the time. Many people's heads, you know, your, your necks are changing shape because you're constantly looking down at your cell phone, your smartphone. Um, because we're not, we're not present in what we're doing because it's not keeping our attention. It's not interesting us enough. So we're looking for distraction. And for some people that's food and food has a lot of emotion attached to it. You know, we, we go out to eat with people. It's family events. Like it's never just fueling your body. It's always got emotion to it. So it's a distraction and there's this emotional completion that comes from it, which is what I was seeking as a little kid. And I don't feel that way about food anymore. It doesn't mean I don't enjoy food but I don't uh, enjoy it in my soul, if that makes sense. You know, I, I used to look for that, like, love and comfort that, you know, my parents were arguing and, and doing their thing and, you know, splitting the, the kids up between two houses. And so I never had both of my parents' full attention. Uh, pretty much never had one of their full attention because there were four of us and there was a lot going on. Um, but I always had that stack of Oreos full attention until I killed them. Uh, you know, or, or whatever else I was eating. Like, it was always there. It always felt good. It was never distracted. It's never judging me. It was satiating in some ways, and in other ways, it always left me empty. But there's a lot to food. And and one thing I don't want to say is this isn't just about food. The book is, is much broader than that. But this is a really powerful one that, you know, a ton of people, a ton of people identify with, whether it's food or alcohol or food and alcohol or whatever. There's a lot more than just 
Like the actual food is just the symptom. And if you don't get to the heart of why you're eating the way you are, you're going to keep doing it. This, this is a fantastic conversation, and, I, and, I, and I, I, I hate having to move it along, uh, but we've got about eight minutes left in, in, in order to, to, to get you off the phone in, in time uh, so, so that you can, you can say goodnight to, to, to your boy, uh, as, as we promised. So, so I, we just wanted to, to ask you, uh, since our, 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 uh, our audience is very much made out of insurance professionals, uh, what advice do you, do you have? Uh, and, and, and we kind of, we kind of play both sides. We, we, we serve both audiences. On one hand, what, what advice do you have for the insurance companies out there, uh, and, and leaders and executives on, on, on how to, how to grow their people? Uh, and also what advice do you, do you have for, for young insurance professionals starting in the industry today on how to grow so that we can have a career like yours in, in, in the long term? Yeah. That's, that's a great question. I, my advice to companies is, I think is a really, really hard one for the vast majority of insurers to put into practice. And um, to put it really bluntly, start giving a damn about culture. And don't just make some corporate initiative around it. Don't hire a consultant. You, if you don't have uh, a culture that's focused on enrichment and growth, and support and empowerment. And I mean, really and truly, you are going to wither and die. And this is something our industry is notorious for, is having cultures that are more closed off, hierarchical, old school. That is not the world anymore. And, you know, it's a very common discussion point that there's this, this gap in talent. We've got a lot of people that are in the 50 plus range who they may not be retiring today, but they will be in the next 10 to 15 years. And a lot of them are career insurance folks who have good retirement planning in place. So they are going to be able to retire. And your next round of people may just be in their twenties. You know, you've got, there's definitely some talent in between. Um, but people in their twenties expect a different kind of culture. And if they feel stagnation, if they feel politics, if they feel unsupported, they're not going to stick around. So if you want to thrive, then you need to figure out how to move your culture into one that is much more enriching and empowers people to act. You know, one thing I deal with is, you know, in claims, obviously people have authority to reserve and settle and pay claims. And um, I had hired someone from another carrier and they were shocked that they were allowed to do something outside of their core job that they didn't have to get approval for it. And it was like $1,500, I think it was a, to go to a, a plus event or something like that, or certification. I forget exactly what it was. I was like, yeah, it's fine if you think it, it was actually for someone who worked for them. So they, they thought they needed my approval. I was like, no, I think it's valuable and it ties to what they do and they can spare the time. Go right ahead. You don't need me to say yes. And they were looking at me like, we can just do that? And I was like, how much, how much settlement authority do you have? And she was like, a million dollars. It's like, so I can trust you to pay a million dollars on behalf of the company? but I can't trust you to understand whether $1,500 on an employee is well spent or not. Like just that's a ask good yourself point. that. How many, I mean, but you know what? It, it's so rampant. How many decisions do we have like that? Do you need, in my last carrier, I had to get approval for a $158 flight to go see my staff in Michigan. And I had to have a whole explanation of why that, I was like, you know what? I'll just pay out of pocket. Like I, I could sign up to $500,000 
in, in vendor invoices. And I couldn't, I couldn't get that round trip on JetBlue. I don't know if it's because I was going to have two bags of pop chips or what, like, where was the break in authority here? But we spend our time on inane things that tell our people, we don't think you're good enough to make a basic decision. We need to challenge the heck out of that. And for, for people going into the industry, care more about culture than you do about a thousand dollars. So I see people who make career choices over a thousand dollars or two thousand dollars. And I get it. You know, I get you're 22 or 24, or wherever you're at and you're making 50 grand and someone offers you 53 and you're like, you know, I'm jumping ship. They promised me the world. Not everything in life is free. And believe it or not, you're actually playing a long game called your entire career. So just make sure that you're making the right trade-offs. And if you're at a place where the culture is really something special, recognize that. And there is value to that, my friend. Not everything is free. You will pay a price if you make those, you know, those short-term, uh, short-dollar decisions. Doesn't mean they're always wrong, but in the same way I'm telling people to be introspective and look at themselves, do that with these career decisions. Because once you find the right place, there will always be temptations. You know, if you're, if you're dating the most attractive person, someone else at some point will be better looking. If you're driving the nicest car, there will be a newer, nicer version of it at some point. It doesn't always make it a right choice. So spend the same time I'm telling you to put into yourself on your career, on your decision process. Make sure you're making those calls for the right reasons and not for something that may seem right in the right here right now, but in the bigger picture, maybe a bit frivolous. It's great advice. Wow. Uh, I, I, I'm blown away by the last five, six minutes of this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. We, we're going to have to have you back at some point. I know that you're totally a crazy calendar and especially, uh, with, with what's going on with the storms. But, uh, you know, even if, even if we need to schedule it six months in advance, we would love to have you back to dig deeper in, into what the industry can do. Uh, because it's exactly, you, you've, you've made everything we've talked about at Ideas Nerds for three or four years. You've digested it into the best elevator speech ever. Uh, awesome. I, I'm, like, I'm blown away. So I, I think we should probably close with, with that, uh, especially to, to get you off the phone in time as promised. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Uh, and, uh, it, any, anything else you'd like to say before we, we close up for today? Yeah, I mean, I just, I'd love to offer all your listeners a discount on the book. The ebook's cheaper than the paperback, but some people like to have that physical copy. So if you go to doadaybook.com slash insnerd discount, I-N-S-N-E-R-D discount, you'll get four bucks off the paperback just for your listeners. So a little something to share with people if they're curious about the book. Um, and you know, you can, you can find out more about it and, and all the places you can follow me at doadaybook.com. It's all listed there. That's fantastic. Thank you, Thank you so much. much. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me guys. Uh, truly an honor chatting with you today. Uh, thank you both and, uh, for joining today. And Nick, I know you're traveling, so thank you for taking the time to call in, uh, while you're traveling. And, uh, thank you to all of our listeners. I, I'm blown away by this one. Go to space.